Welcome to Cappa Cubby Blue. Your, the sportsbook construction is still very much underway with opening day at Wrigley just four days away home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We're the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about the Cubs and more, and I am beyond excited that we are joined by a special guest today. But before I introduce that guest, let me introduce our co-host, Danny Rocket. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Good morning to, uh, well, I don't know when you're listening to this out there in podcast landia, but uh, over here, it's a, it's a beautiful Sunday morning in Wrigleyville and uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're getting it ready. The sports book that is. Yeah. They're getting something ready. They're getting ready for gambling over at Wrigley field. I, I will say I was, stu- I was super happy that this Sunday, the sun did actually make an appearance for the first time in like five days here in Chicago. So that was a nice little reprieve for about an hour and, and it's gone again. So <laughs> Oh yeah, it's actually foggy now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, we're we're definitely staring down like a forty-one cloudy and drizzly type of opening day, but that is okay. Uh, the sportsbook convo and banter and opening day banter is perfect a perfect segue to our guests for today. In addition to Danny, we're both thrilled to be joined today by one of my three favorite baseball writers, Craig Calcaterra, whose work you have likely previously seen everywhere, but most recently at his Substack cup of coffee. Craig has a new book coming out titled Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. And considering that a lot of Cubs fans are still trying to recover from the emotional hit we all took on Blue Friday, I couldn't think of a better person to join us as the 2022 season gets underway. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you for having me on. That's very gracious of you to say. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're just going to dive right into it. We've got some questions about Craig's book, which Danny and I were lucky enough to get an advanced copy of so that we could sort of delve into some of the issues here. But before we get into the heavy stuff, there there was one chapter in particular that just super resonated with me and my Cubs fandom. You tell a little bit of a story about Greg Maddox in chapter nine. And, and full disclosure, uh, if you read the book, you'll know that Craig grew up a Braves fan. I imagine that this Maddox story will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Is there any way that you can share a little bit about your insights into Greg Maddox and what you saw in chapter nine. Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the, 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 the brief version. Cause I think I take up like five pages to tell that story. Um, so I, you know, I was a Tigers fan as a little kid, but then I became a Braves fan in the eighties when I moved to where I could only see the superstation. I didn't have WGN where I live. So that's why I didn't become a Cubs fan probably, but, um, I became a Braves fan. And of course, a few years later, Greg Maddox joined the Braves and he was my favorite player while he was with the Braves. And then he went back to the Cubs uh, and he was famously in 2006 traded again from the Cubs uh, to the Dodgers as a, you know, a down to the wire playoff acquisition old veteran to try to get you into the playoffs. Maddox was a little past his prime at that point, uh, still capable of good outings, but he was nowhere near the Cy Young level Greg Maddox that we all came to know. I, at that point in my life, was a lawyer, and I had two little kids at home, and I was burnt out like nobody's business, particularly with the job. The kids I could handle. The work was really, really bad. Um, And I just didn't feel like I had my best days ahead of me either. I took a bunch of junior lawyer types from my law firm down to Cincinnati to see the Dodgers play the Reds. And it was the first game that Maddox pitched for the Dodgers like two days after the trade from Chicago. And Greg Maddox, who never threw a no-hitter in his life because he was too close to the strike zone all the time, he just couldn't bear to walk people, he would rather give up a hit than walk somebody, had a no-hitter through six innings. 
it was amazing. The place was half empty. It was a steamy, horrible midweek game in Cincinnati. I was there screaming and hooting and hollering at the top of my lungs that Greg Maddox, my favorite player, seemed to reach down back six, seven, eight, ten years to the past and get some of the mojo that he used to have. And uh, and then right in the sixth inning ended, lightning crashed. Rain came down. It was just a tsunami. It was terrible. It was a monsoon. And uh, the 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 delay was too long, and Maddox did not stay in the game. And uh, a reliever came in. I think it was Joe Bemel. Uh, I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I forgot that guy. He was so like non-essential to the Dodgers. And uh, he gave up a hit to literally the first batter he faced, and the no hitter was over. Uh, Maddox would not have hung around for the no hitter. He, he you know needed he was older, needed to keep his pitch pitch count low. Uh, they needed him for the playoff push. Uh, but on that night. I was just re-inspired. I never really left baseball, but I was re-inspired that night. And I learned that if someone like Greg Maddox can reach down and find something better, even after he thinks his best days are past him, I can too. And I I don't think it's overstatement to say that my life changed uh, for the better on that day in a lot of ways. And I still think about that day all the time whenever I'm encountering challenges. Uh, And I offer all of that to say, if you read this book, you're probably going to think, man, that guy really hates sports. Nah, no, not at all. I like sports. It's important to me, damn it. Well, I think it's interesting because that was such an impactful moment for you and kind of like you saw the parallels of yourself and Greg in that moment. And it was so meaningful to you that what you're doing in the book is examining in many ways what sports having that great meaning to you in your life means in a larger sense and how the owners maybe take advantage of that feeling that you'll get from sports uh, and what it means to you uh, culturally, socially. And that's what I find interesting. So how do you reconcile reconcile on this show? I know we talk a lot about it, all the nefarious deeds of our owners and how we can't stand their politics and the, raising money for the wrong parties and the wrong things, governors of, of states, uh, right wing. Uh, and we have trouble reconciling our fandom with being a Cubs fan. So how, how have you come to reconcile, reconcile those meaningful moments? And I know you kind of are a self-described lefty yourself. How, how how do you reconcile some of that and how have you carved out fandom for yourself in this particular moment? Well, what I have tried to do first and foremost is not rationalize the bad things. Um, Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Houston Texans uh, was traded to the Cleveland Browns last week or the week before Uh, he has 22 uh, complaints against him for sexual assault. He's been investigated by multiple grand juries. Um, it's not a he said, she said. It's a he said, 22 she said. So I tend to believe the she's. Uh, I live in Ohio. I have a lot of Cleveland Browns fans who are friends and people who live around me and people I interact with. Um, when things like that happen, when your team is associated with somebody who's bad or something that is bad, you have a couple of things you can do. One thing that sports fans tend to do way too much is rationalize or not even rationalize, go beyond that and just sort of create fiction. I have a, a, he's not a friend, but he's somebody I know who is a big Browns fan who in all other respects, you would think is a sensible guy, a, uh, a, a reasonable person. He is not like just some blindly loyal, crazy fan person. He 
decided that what really had happened with Deshaun Watson was uh, he was set up by the Houston Texans owners. Uh, this was a grand conspiracy to discredit him so they don't have to pay him. I, it was clearly this unhinged invention to allow himself to root for the Cleveland Browns and this quarterback, despite the fact that he would be slagging him totally. This guy spent, you know, 15 years slagging Ben Roethlisberger for the Steelers because he had a few allegations against him, but he's completely changed it because, damn it, that's my team. Sports fans can't do that, okay? You can't do that. You can't say, well, yeah, Tom Ricketts is bad, but the guy who owns the Brewers is bad too. Uh, you, you know, you need to be able to call out your own team when there are things there. That's a basic thing. Um, see reality for what it is. Now, that doesn't mean you have to stop rooting for your team. I'm not telling every Cubs fan who disagrees politically with the Ricketts family that they can't be Cubs fans because the second step is the important step. That is, you need to get cool with yourself of what you want out of sports and what you can tolerate from sports. If you think sports are your life and sports are your identity, and it's okay if they are, there are people who are like that. But if you think being a sports fan and being a fan of your team is the central part of your identity, you're going to have a really, really hard time making peace with Tom Ricketts if you don't agree politically with Tom Ricketts. But if you put sports in a proper perspective in your life, and I don't mean eliminate it, I don't mean give up sports, but if you just make sure that it only occupies a part of your brain that you're able to click off, and then go on with the rest of your life when the games are over, you can make that work. I love watching a baseball game. I love, if I'm a Cubs fan, I love to watch the Cubs play. I'm going to be super excited to see Marcus Stroman pitch this year in a Cubs uniform. And then when the game's over, though, I can turn it off and not think too much and not do things that the Ricketts family or Rob Manfred or whoever I have some problems with want me to do and want to take advantage of in my emotional and passionate fandom. I really appreciate everything that you're putting down there because I, I mean, I joke frequently that my longest successful relationship outside of my family is with the Chicago Cubs. I became a Cubs fan when I was four years old. And now that relationship feels a little bit problematic, right? Like I had to deal with a 2016 season where the team signed a Rodless Chapman. That was personally painful for me. I've written a lot about why that was personally painful for me. I think that there were a lot of people who were praying. I was one of them praying that someone other than a Rodless Chapman would have the ball when the Cubs, if the Cubs could finally win it all and, and thank the Lord or God or whatever, whoever that that did happen. I'm not, you know, whatever, whoever you pray. Hey, to. rains came, rains came <laughs> in that game. So. Uh, I'm telling you, those were the tears of all the Cubs ancestors <laughs> who came before trying to wash away this one last mess up. But you know, I, I want to start, I want to get back to the start of the book and to this concept of the sports industrial complex. I mean, I'm an old political science person, so the military industrial complex is something that I am deeply familiar with, but I don't know that all baseball fans are. You use this as a mechanism, and, and I'm just going to pull a quote from your book, by which teams can and often do use our irrational devotion and loyalty for their own purposes while actively hurting the teams we love, the cities we call home, and the athletes we can't stop watching. As a Cubs fan, as a resident of Wrigleyville who has really watched it transform into Ricketsville, this tracked with me so much. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by the sports industrial complex and what it means for fans. Sports are more than sports. Um, sports are obviously a business. We all are able to say, hey, sports is a business. And we, we do that when someone gets traded or not signed or something like that. Uh, but it's a business in ways that are, it's way more pervasive than we even usually allow it to, to, to be. 
Um, you know, the Ricketts family own a lot of things, but they also own the Cubs and they also own a lot of real estate and they also have interest in networks and they also, uh, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff, right? They have political connections uh, that have sometimes hindered them, sometimes helped them in, in whatever it is they want to do. Um, sports revolve around a very, very big world that touches on sponsors, media, networks, politicians, whatever. All of that together hasn't, there are various interests there. Only one of them is the Cubs winning 97 games and going to the playoffs. Okay. There are a lot of other things that are classified as a success if you own the Chicago Cubs than the Cubs winning 97 games and going to the playoffs. Uh, the Cubs can win 67 games, but make a billion and a half dollars, you know, doing whatever. The, the Cubs could uh, win 89 games, but serve as the anchor for a huge real estate development. Uh, the Cubs could win 109 games, but that won't be as good necessarily for the sports industrial complex uh, as that sports book is going to be. Um, there are financial interests, political interests, social interests in sports that aren't necessarily the same interest you has, have as a fan, which is hopefully and primarily the team winning. Um, but because the only interest in that entire bucket of interests that is based on emotion, uh, senses of loyalty, irrationality, is the fan's interest, that's the one that's most easily exploitable. People can use you if you have emotional interest. I mean, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to anything. You think of a relationship you're in, think of anything. If you're vulnerable, if you're emotional, you're, you're prone to be vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, you're able to be taken advantage of. And that's something that happens with sports. They use our love for the Cubs to justify, you know, tax subsidies or whatever. I know, maybe Cubs might not be the best example, but, you know, because they have an old stadium, but like a new stadium somewhere. The love of the Buffalo Bills fan is why the state of New York is spending $1.4 billion to build them a new football stadium, even though their owner is worth like six billion bucks himself. Um, and the appeal there is never, we think this, they try, they try. This will be an economically advantageous set, uh, investment to build the stadium with taxpayer money, but it, it doesn't pay off. All the studies show that those don't pay off. But what does work is, hey, the Bills can't compete with anybody else. And if you want to be as good as, you know, the Giants, or if you want to be as good as the Steelers, we're going to need the stadium. This is really on you fans if you want better football. Um, or we would love to pay for the stadium, but if we don't get it, we're going to move to Montreal or Toronto. Um, those are emotional plays. Those are things that they do for us. And, and so my idea in this book is um, because there are all these interests out there in sports and because most of them depend on us being there for them and along for the ride, paying for it all, uh, we need to be very careful of how much power we allow the sports industrial complex to have. And if we can't stop them, and I don't think that we're able to just hold up our little signs as fans and protest and make everything good. I really don't think you can change something as large as, you know, capitalism. Uh, but <laughs> it just we've tried. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> we can't govern. It's okay. Um, what we can do is we can let it not fill spaces in our lives that hurt us unduly. And we could limit our, our enjoyment of sports to the parts that are still enjoyable. And because of uh, all the different revenue streams that many of the owners are sticking to the rickets enjoy, the Hickory Street Capital the, and the real estate around the ballpark, um, 
and because of uh, the history that the Cubs have of of kind of just being a generational fan base here in the middle of a city, you got the old ballpark, you've got a lot of tourists that come in here. So they they're going to enjoy a certain amount of revenue streams, regardless of whether the team is good or not. Um, it's I guess my question is, is this is uh, how has all these revenue streams de-incentivized winning it for the Cubs and other teams. It's interesting that we're you know, talking about this on a Cubs podcast. This is the first time I've talked to Cubs people about this book. The, the Cubs, if anything, were probably the earliest example of what's now been, you know, sort of weaponized against fans. And I think it was always overstated, the old sense of, you know, the Cubs owners know they don't, they don't have to win because they know people show up anyway because Wrigley Field's great. And there was, there's truth to that, right? There were always, and also the, the local connections, obviously. I think the Cubs, Chicago is a baseball city in ways that most other cities aren't. Um, and there's going to be this loyalty there no matter what happens. Um, maybe not no matter what happens, but you can go a lot farther over the last hundred and some years pushing Cubs fans to their limit and they'll still stay there than you could in other cities. Uh, that's good but, and bad. Don't take that as an I was insult. Say, for you're, better basi- or for worse. you're basically <laughs> looking at two people that you're describing right now. So you've right. been pushed to, to all the edges of the Cubs universe. Right. So the Cubs were a little bit more uh, losing proof than a lot of teams, I guess, for a very long time. And WGN helped that too, right? I mean, they, they, the Braves, my same example, they, they could stink for a long time, but they were Braves fans all over the country because you know everybody could watch them. The same with the Cubs. Um, that dynamic, which was an unusual one for most of sports history, is now a very common one. And it's one that's been intentionally pursued, meaning uh, we, we don't have to win and we'll still make money. Uh, and, and part of what you guys just talked about, you know, like the, the gambling piece, the real estate piece, uh, the sponsorship, since Rob Manfred became commissioner of baseball, there's a page on MLB.com that has every like corporate partner and sponsorship and stuff with, with the league. Um, it used to have like six. And then since Rob Manfred has come in, he has made that in like, and I know people who work at and have worked at MLB who, who said that this was like his top priority when he came in was we are going to diversify our revenue streams. We are going to make sure that uh, we have every single sponsorship. We are going to sell everything that isn't nailed down. And they have continued to do that. Um, so what happens with this is, and it's I think it's by design, is if we're the 30 owners in Major League Baseball, we would love to be able to ensure our profitability. We don't want variability. I think any sort of business owner or capitalist would would say that. This is why they want corporate welfare. This is why they want tax breaks. This is why they want uh, deregulation is we want to be able to make money as surely and routinely as we possibly can without variance. The biggest thing that varies in baseball are, you know, player salaries and wins and losses and things. And there was a time until very recently that the number one predictor of, or not predictor, the number one factor into an owner making money was ticket sales. Um, there were a lot of really poorly run teams back in like the thirties and the forties and whatever, but there was a practical limit as to how bad you could be on the field, uh, before the owner went bankrupt or had to sell the team or, or something. Uh, if you don't sell tickets, if you have no reason to go to the ballpark, eventually the owner was going to take a bath and have to get out of the business. And that happened fairly frequently. Um, we are in a situation now where it's impossible for baseball owners to, to face that basically impossible. The only, I mean, Frank McCourt with the Dodgers 10 years ago, but that was because of, you know, 
malicious mismanagement and self-dealing and all kinds of other things. Um, but if you own the Pittsburgh Pirates right now, if you're Bob Nutting and you own the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, you have $65 million a year that you make just from national TV deals. You probably have another 30 or $40 million a year you make from your local TV deal. You have several more million dollars from various partnerships and merch sales and things like that. You have whatever cut he's getting of, of baseball's gambling money uh, or whatever initiatives he's doing on his own in Pittsburgh for that. I don't know if it's legal there or not, but you know that kind of a thing. Um, basically, I did back of the envelope a couple of weeks ago. If you're owning the Pirates, a quote, low revenue team, unquote, uh, you're probably pulling in a bare minimum of about 150 to 180 million dollars before you even play a game. The Pirates' payroll, last I checked, is at like 40 million bucks. Okay, the ticket sales don't matter. Zero people could show up to PNC Park this year, and Bob Nutting is going to be profitable. And if that's the case, and if wins and losses are the number thing, number one thing that drives ticket sales, what incentive do you have to win or lose? Really, none. Um, and that's right now at any given time, I think there are like five or six teams that are kind of pursuing life the way the pirates are. Some see, you know, percentages in, in investing more in players and winning some because there is more money to be had there. But you don't have to. If you're not that ambitious, if you inherited the team from your dad and baseball didn't course through your blood uh, the way it did your, for your dad, I think of the Illich family in Detroit. Mike Illich, for whatever you wanted to say about that old billionaire, he wanted to win games. Same with Steinbrenner. I mean, George Steinbrenner. I can fill this entire podcast up with terrible things about George Steinbrenner. But at the end of the day, he wanted to win because his baseball team was an extension of his ego. And that made him a really bad dude in a whole lot of ways. But it also was at least sharing an interest with fans. George Steinbrenner wanted to win because it made him feel good, but that made the Yankees fan feel good too. Um, that has gone away now. If you're the second generation and it's just, I got this business from my dad and I got to keep managing it. Uh, you don't have that passion anymore. And if you don't have that passion, you start to think, sort of objectively. And if you think objectively, you realize what incentive structures are there and what incentive structures are not there. And all of a sudden you end up uh, not spending a lot of money on players and doing things to pursue profit instead of winning baseball and glory. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the Pirates. I was thinking this week, do a lot of fantasy baseball stuff. I was thinking this week about how O'Neill Cruz is going to start the season in the minors for hashtag mm -hmm. reasons. It's not like the Pirates have another shortstop there. No, the guy blocking him has like a 55 OPS plus for the last <laughs> like 200 games he played. I mean, I'm sure he's a nice fellow, but he's not being blocked by a better player. <laughs> yes, correct. And the real losers here are the O'Neill Cruises of the world who are ready to play Major League Baseball right now, who for whom you know, making the jump from a minor league salary to a major league minimum salary and then starting your free agency clock and hopefully getting paid someday. That is generational money that is still on the table for people who have sunk their entire life into training for this game and to being part of this game. You know, on winning and losing and tanking, I think that sometimes we, the Cubs and Astros really demonstrated that baseball tanking could work. You could tank, you could get yourself a World Series championship. But I think it runs deeper than that. The CBA has incentivized some practices that have really made life worse for baseball players. And as a result, worse for the teams that we as fans see on the field, right? Like we see worse teams and players who have not been developed to the best of their ability. I'm wondering, do you think anything in the new CBA actually disrupt, disrupted that structure or are player gains still at the margins and we're still just going to have to deal with waiting two years to see O'Neill Cruz for hashtag reasons because Bob Nutting doesn't want to pay him? I don't think anything fundamentally changed in the new CBA. Um, 
I, I, and I preface all of this by saying that I am a very strong supporter of the Major League Baseball Players Association. I am among national baseball writers, probably one of the ones furthest out there who is, you know, arguing in favor of the union side of things. Um, and I respect the work they do. I also think that they too are part of the sports industrial complex and there have been some incentives and some missteps and some things that have led us to where we are with the current labor situation, particularly as it impacts minor leaguers and amateurs who uh, will be drafted or, or, you know, capped and all those sorts of things. Uh, For a lot of, for many years, you know, veterans sort of run the the union and there was a, a stretch there where they would happily uh, give up things that only harmed amateurs or minor leaguers in order to get something. I get why that is. I understand that it's a zero-sum game in negotiations, but it sort of led to a situation which strongly incentivized the use of young pre-arb players and strongly incentivized uh, service time manipulation and things like that. I don't think anything changed in the new CBA. The the draft lottery thing is a joke. I, no one is going to spend $10 more just because it might get them from the third draft pick to the first draft pick. I really don't think so. Most years, we don't have a consensus first draft pick in baseball. It'd be different if this was basketball and one player can transform you, uh, you know, from an also ran to a championship caliber team. That doesn't happen in baseball. Um, And even with the tanking thing you mentioned, I mean, the Cubs and Astros were first movers. It's like anything else. It's like multi-level marketing or something. If you get in early on a scheme, uh, you could probably do pretty well on it, even if it is a scam. (laughs) But, uh, you know, not everybody can tank and do it. After the Cubs and Astros did it, you had like seven or eight teams go out there and try to do it. And they really haven't done well with it. I mean, the Braves, I think, are the closest. Uh, They won the World Series, but I don't think they ever truly tanked in the way uh, that we we think of it. They, They did certainly give up a little bit after 2013 or so for a few years, but it was more of a reload than it was a, a complete teardown rebuild. They didn't lose a hundred games for three years in a row like the Astros did. Um, so no, I don't think anything's changed. I think we still have the same incentive structure. I think we're still going to have a situation where service time will be manipulated. Uh, I think that uh, for just the dynamics of the sport, we're going to have a situation where the most useful players are under 30 but, you know, and, and to their credit, the union did try. They at least threw out an offer of like, let's try to get free agency down from six years to five years. Let's try to get arbitration down from three years to two years. MLB didn't have to say anything to that. Um, and the union is realistic. They, they didn't really have any tool at their disposal to make Major League Baseball change that. And it's going to be a gradual process over several CBA generations uh, to, to get any of that back, I think. And overall, this is all within a context of Major League Baseball losing popularity with an aging fan base. And uh, so this they averted the lock, uh, the season getting locked out any further than they did. I think that maybe there was some pressure there on both the owners and the players that, hey, we already had a couple lost seasons. We we better get something out there. Otherwise, we're going to lose more and more fans. But I'm wondering, it's, do you, where do you see this going? So you talk about millions of dollars that you're making even before a game is played. But that is not a sustainable situation with a sport that's ultimately losing a fan base. Um, like, is this going to end up in 50 years being like, you know, more of a, um, I don't know, maybe a secondary sport like 
curling or you know something that would be on ESPN four. Well, the great the great example is I think you're right. Actually, I think that's what's going to happen. I don't think curling, but we have two <laughs> fantastic examples of where a sport can go in the national consciousness um, in boxing and horse racing. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, before football really emerged. Uh, and even then it was still college for many years, but uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, there were three major sports in, in America, baseball, horse racing, and boxing. And when I say major, I mean front page news, like a horse race, a major horse race was front page news. It wasn't like a little box in the corner about what happened at Santa Anita. It was like big news. People knew who the big horses were. People knew who the big boxers were in the prize fights and how the boxing thing continued really, you know, until the seventies or the eighties. And once in a while it pops up again, but over time, particularly because of gambling, uh, they, they became, and closed circuit TV and things like that, um, they became sports that depended less and less on national popularity in masses of people as opposed to being lucrative. And those are not necessarily the same thing. Just as we, we've talked about how revenue streams can depend, don't have to depend on people showing up at the ballpark, they don't have to show up on there being a certain number of fans either, or the, the sport being popular in the broad sense to where we all talk about it and we, uh, you know, it, it, it sits in our national consciousness. I think baseball very consciously is heading in that direction. Major League Baseball's owners, led by Rob Manfred, I think have made the conscious decision that we will happily wall off the game if we can get more money out of it. We will lower the capacity of stadiums if each seat sold will make us more money. We will make it harder to watch the game on TV if each pair of eyes that we get is more lucrative because it's you know behind a cable paywall or a streaming service or something like that. Um, I truly believe that the owners don't really care about the sport sitting as, you know, it's not the national pastime like it used to be anyway, but I think they're totally happy with it descending even further and further down the ladder of those sorts of things because it's all about making money. Craig, there's so many things I want to ask you, and I'm just going to tell our our listeners right now, they should go out and write, read your book because you're going to have a million questions for Craig too. I think <laughs> that we'll close off the part of this, this part of the podcast, the book part of the podcast with just you know, more of a meta question. I think that Cubs fans, maybe more than any fan base in the country, have not being fair weather fans as part of our DNA. We are supposed to root for the laundry, the lovable losers who come back and do the thing. Like we waited 108 years for a championship. That is part of who being a Cubs fan is. But you make a really compelling argument in this book for being a fair weather fan. And, and I wonder, and I, and I thought it was an optimistic and hopeful argument in a book that is, as you noted, sometimes not optimistic. I wonder if you can expound on that a little bit and then uh, we'll look towards the towards opening day in the season. Well, I, I sort of admittedly am trying to bait people by saying you should be a Fairweather fan because I know that's the kind of thing that just incenses people. I, my hope was that like some guy that I don't like at Barstool or something would get really mad at it or, Bill's, or Bill Simmons or somebody would say, how dare this guy? And then like, you know, tell their millions and millions of followers to go hate read my book because hate reads still make me money. Um, so, you know, it's not quite just be a Fairweather fan. I think, you know, if you love something, if you love the Cubs and it's like your father did and your grandfather did and it's part of your your whole thing. I mean, I'm not telling you just, oh, the Cubs had a bad season. I'm going to stop rooting for them. That's ridiculous. No one's going to do that. But what I am saying is that sports are supposed to be fun. Sports are supposed to be enjoyable. If it ceases to be enjoyable for you, you have some options. And one of which is 
quit rooting for the team that makes it unenjoyable for you. Uh, just losing might be a bit of a stretch, but what if you're the Minnesota Timberwolves and you have lost for 30 years straight and you've got like the worst winning percentage of any professional sports franchise and the owners have just demonstrated disdain for the product? Are you really obligated to stick with that? And come on, the Minnesota Timberwolves aren't that old. Your grandfather wasn't rooting for them because they didn't exist then. It's okay if the team you root for is bad or or it, or it does bad things or it signs or trades for bad players or or the political people you know that they're involved with are terrible it's okay for you to say i'm gonna go root for somebody else for a while because i want to you know watch somebody that i enjoy that's there's nothing wrong with that that's a, you're accused of being a fair weather fan if you do that but the whole point is to have fun if you're not having fun don't watch sports or at least change what you're watching I love that. There's so much more in this book, including maybe the best title chapter I've ever heard in my life, which was gentrifying the bleachers. And I, I'm, I'm just so jealous of that phrase. I think it's perfect. And you should definitely check it out. Uh, Craig's book is out on April 5th. You can pre-order it now. Be sure you check it out. It's a, it's a perfect companion to a baseball season that probably has a lot of fans of different fan bases, more than just the Cubs, feeling a little bit skeptical of the nation's pastime after all of the drama of the CBN lockout. But there's also drama coming up in the form of games. And after a quick word from our sponsors, we are going to take a quick look at what we can expect from the NL Central this season. We're excited that Craig is going to join us for that preview. Hang out for just a few minutes. And we are back. All right. The NL Central, it still exists, even though half the teams in it don't seem to want to win very much. We are going to talk about what we can expect from this division this season. The Cubs are going to open their season on Thursday with a four-game set against a Milwaukee Brewers team that looks built to win. And we'll see how that goes. I don't think it's going to go very well for the Cubs. But let's just start with who do, who do we think uh, is going to win the NL Central this year? And I think I've already laid my cards on the table. I think the Brewers look like a team that wants to win and nobody else in this division does. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I'm one of those people, and I'm sure Cubs fans will not along with this, who believes that the St. Louis Cardinals have made a deal with the devil. So no matter what happens, I mean, if anyone is going to do it, Albert Pujols will like hit 27 home runs and like get low ballot MVP consideration this year, because that's just what the Cardinals do, right? That <laughs> something has happened. I mean, whether it's Will Clark or Jim Edmonds or whatever, they always get old dudes who shouldn't be playing well anymore and all of a sudden do something amazing. And it would not shock me if the Cardinals are better than we think they're going to be, even though they've got some injury problems. But yeah, I, I tend to think that the Brewers are the class of the division. Uh, I think that, you know, the Reds and the Pirates have obviously just decided to give up for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, things break right for the Cubs. They, they're going to be in it. And we have expanded playoffs. I don't think it's uh, it's going to be a lost season for them at all. Yeah, I'm calling the Cardinals tour. I'm calling it the cocoon tour. Do you ever remember that whole day? <laughs> just like they're finding the fountain of youth in that pool because the aliens came came down. And they'll always have that made-up play or two that'll come up in the middle of the year with some some really odd name. Like, well, Lars they already Neupar. have. Lars yeah, not Lars Neupar already there. Yeah, he's already there. It's it, like it, when you but, play video games and the computer like decides it doesn't want you to win anymore and it just like makes up some opponent you can't beat. That's what the Cardinals do. It's like all of a sudden we've just got this like construct who's now a, a corner outfielder with like a 980 OPS over 75 games that matter. And it's like, where did this guy come from? They do that all the time. Yeah, and then he'll be on the A's in two years doing nothing. You <laughs> exactly. know, it's just how it always happens. Uh, but I mean, as far as it's interesting, you said that uh, if cut things break right for the Cubs and I and I th was thinking about it and really April, well, you've got a lot of divisional games uh, in April. If you do get out to a pretty hot start and you've got a, a team that isn't 
necessarily supposed to win, but you're winning anyway, you can get yourself on a pretty good trajectory. The question really then would be, is this, they have the money to add and do better in the central this year. And I don't think that the Brewers are completely unbeatable. And I like, they're no, they're not the Dodgers. They're not, you know, putting together some like Superman squad. I mean, you got to remember their Cy Young winning pitcher like two or three years ago was like a seven ERA dude. Like guys like that turn into pumpkins sometimes. So you don't know. Yeah. And so I'd just be, would, I would be interested to see if the team that the Cubs did get off to a decent start, if they would try to, uh, enhance the team and, you know, pick up the extra arm that you need out of the starting rotation, get yourself a certified closer, you know, somebody that's used to doing that, or maybe the bullpen by committee works out. I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see, uh, because right now there's projected of 500 or just below team by most everybody that is, is talking about it. And so I just would wonder if they would do something in the middle of the season to make that a, 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 to be a difference maker. It is interesting that you bring up the bullpen there, Danny, because one of the things that the Cubs have been very good at the last few years is going out and finding the next dude who can be a lights out reliever. Now, admittedly, they have been signing all of those dudes to one-year contracts so that they can flip them for prospects at the deadline when the Cubs are not in contention, but I'm not bitter or anything. I just think that the dude this year who I am super interested in, and I cannot recommend this piece enough, uh, Mikey Iheto over at Baseball Prospectus wrote a piece back in November on Michael Givens, who I saw throw in a spring training game for the Cubs yesterday. And he notes that Givens' arm slot and his spin and like a bunch of this like vector stuff that, you know, frankly, you have to be one of those super smart pitching dudes to understand. But admittedly, I can understand a chart. And when you look at the charts that show this, that where Michael Givens lives relative to the rest of the league here, he is in the neighborhood of two other pitchers and two other pitchers only. And those pitchers are Craig Kimbrell and Paul Seawald, who are both excellent relievers. And I think the Cubs may have found the next like random dude who is going to be a shutdown closer type for cheap. Givens is interesting because I think he's played his entire career in like extreme hitters parks, too. Um, he was with Colorado yeah. for a while. I know he played for the Orioles for years and years. And the Reds. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Because he was with Cincinnati last year, and that place is a bandbox. Um, you know, if his peripherals. The last time I looked at him, well, probably was when he was with Baltimore. So that was a couple of years ago. But his peripherals, I think, always were better than his performance. Um, and you know, that's those are the kind of guys. And, I, and you got to give credit to Hoyer and everybody for finding people like that. I mean, I know everybody's front office is smart now, but I think the Cubs, you're right, have consistently done that. They've been finding diamonds in the rough like that. And to their credit, maybe Givens is that guy. Yeah, I think the bullpen could be a real strength um, this season. I think it sounds like we're all pretty much in agreement that you got to beat the Brewers, you got to beat the Cardinals if you can find some way. I'm not sure that the Cardinals are beatable. I feel like combining they did combine the trifecta of Adam Wainwright's last season, Yadier Molina's last season, and Albert Pujols' last season. I mean, it's going to be... It's going to be gross. It's an unholy triumvirate. But looking a little bit more closely at the Cubs, who I think do have a shot against the bottom of the division, they get a lot of games against the Reds and the Pirates, which is a bonus when you're in one of those divisions where nobody wants to win. What do we see as advantages for the Cubs aside from the bullpen? Craig, I'll go to you first. I mean, I think you just hit it. Schedule is going to help because, you know, they're they're not in competition necessarily with Milwaukee as much as they're going to be in competition with the Phillies and the Mets and the Padres. Right. Because that's who that, you know, first, second, third wild card is going to come from. Um, those teams all have much harder schedules to play than the Cubs do because we still have a fairly unbalanced schedule. 
Um, so I think that's a, a big key to them. Obviously, starting pitching health is going to matter. Um, you got a pretty decent one, two, three, you know, in 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 Hendricks and Stroman and uh, and uh, Miley, right? Miley, yeah. Um, well, Miley's hurt. We don't oh, even yeah. know. How, how hurt is he? That's the thing. I wasn't it's sure. A great question. It's we a don't great know. question. He, he showed up. He showed up looking like Nick Nolte to spring training. He just. <laughs> <laughs> you just, say that like it's a bad thing, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was. It, I don't know what happened to him, but he just he looked like he had been living in the woods or something. And and uh, so, but he hasn't thrown yet at spring training, so we don't really know. Oh, okay, I didn't know if he had pitched. I haven't really followed the Cubs in spring training. I knew they picked him up, and I knew that he was hurt, but I wasn't sure if that was like a day to day thing or if that was yeah, like a. We don't know either. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. he threw a bullpen, and the news out of the bullpen initially was good, and then it came back as oh, he's sore, so we're gonna shut him. Down down for a couple of weeks see so. that's the problem if if drew smiley is your fifth starter then you can do okay if he's your third starter you've got problems he might be our third starter although there are a couple of guys hanging out fighting for that last spot that i am interested in danny i know you've been watching a lot of the spring training games what did you see from justin Steele and keegan thompson in those games and do you think that they can hang on in that fifth spot that fourth fifth spot um long enough for miley to get healthy and keep the cubs in this thing i mean I mean, they're going to have to, and even if they don't, I mean, it, no, they're going to have to take those innings and they're going to piggyback them. Just Adrian Sampson, I'll put him in the, the yeah, yeah, that sure. little uh, group too, because that's how the innings are going to be eaten up this year at that back end of the rotation. It's going to be a lot of piggyback starts. And then you'll see that guy go back to the bullpen and take a few days rest, but they're going to be pitching once every three days uh, against one time through the order and they're going to do it kind of like Craig Council and the Brewers were doing it at the back end of their rotation for all those years, but they were still competitive uh, during. So, I mean, I, I think that's what you're going to see mostly out of those guys. And I like, I like Justin Steele. I think, you know, he made pitching ninja the other day with, uh, with his breaking ball. And, you know, he had, he had the guy swinging like Bugs Bunny at it. So I'm kind of like, okay, there I this pitch lab and like you said Craig all the teams are smart now right everybody's got a pitch lab everybody's got the advanced metrics everybody's got wearables and all this stuff so everybody's getting the same data but it's possible that the Cubs have uh, might uh, have some pitchers that are really benefiting from that at this point because we're getting these guys up that weren't supposed to be maybe as good as they're performing and you never know where that goes. This is a young guy, but Justin Steele, he, he looks really good to me and he throws with his left hand, which is always a feather in your cap. Has, so has anybody done the breakdown of uh, guys featured on pitching Ninja and Tommy John surgery? <laughs> no, I'm, that's, I, I'm not trying to. That's actually a great potential article, though. <laughs> it's, it's true. Those it just always. It always seems things. like the guys who have like this incredible movement that like become viral all of a sudden. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And then like three months later, oh, he's going to be gone until 2024. <laughs> yes, because it turns out that's amazing because the human body is not designed to work that way repetitively. I mean, <laughs> let's let's look at Good the point. opening day starter who has been featured on Pitching Ninja, but mostly as an outlier. That is Kyle Hendricks, who is the guy. I mean, I just love him all he does is get guys out uh he had a bit of a home run problem last year that home run problem has been evident in spring training again I will say there was a note yesterday in a Kyle Hendricks interview that gave me a lot of optimism Hendricks uh who we call the professor at Wrigley Field and really we think of as kind of you know the successor to Greg Maddox and he's very much he reminds me of him a lot yeah totally being the guy who can just hit his spots and just get guys out 
with weak contact mentioned that he's working on a few things. He's not throwing pitches to get outs. He's not throwing pitches to avoid runs right now. He's trying to fix things in spring training. And I'm thinking that the home runs that we've been seeing out there in Arizona might be more of a result of that than anything that is necessarily wrong with Kyle Hendricks. If Kyle Hendricks is vintage Kyle Hendricks, I like the prospects for this Cubs team a lot. Danny, what have you been seeing from Hendricks in the news and notes? He's given up gopher balls at spring training. I mean, and that's what he was doing all last year. And, you know, we're 2016 was the year he led the league in the ERA. And it was in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, listen, he was awesome, but you know, that was now five years ago. So, you know, you wonder, and you talk about him being low velocity guy, it's going to be way more durable, but he had this coming off his worst year last year he's not really a number one anyway, like he'd be a number two, number three on most teams that were really going for it. You'd have that ace that, you know, and so I just feel like he slotted wrong on this ball club. You know, I just, if, if they had one more guy or, or like, you know, Stroman through six miles an hour faster or something like that, (laughs) you know, it's just like, you know, you just have all the same. So I'm just wondering if the bloom is off the rose on Kyle. And I hate saying that because I love him. He's been great for us for so many years, but you know, these things don't last forever. Uh, He was, I mean, 2020, everybody forgets how 2020 went just because the counting stats were lower because there weren't that many games, but he, he really did seem to snap back into it in 2020. If I remember, I mean, he was pretty good in, in, he was the shorter period. And, like you said last year, the home runs and the, the the walks were what I noticed when I was paying attention to the Cubs last year is he was walking a lot more guys. I mean, his bread and butter was always, I'm not going to put guys on base. And, and he put guys on base last year and his strikeout rate went down a little bit. And um, those are worrisome. I think they're less worrisome for guys like Hendricks than they are for, you know, if all of a sudden Garrett Cole stopped, you know, lost some ticks on his fastball or, uh, or something, you weren't wonder if he could ever get it back. But um uh, Hendricks, you know, he could bounce back, but that was a, that was a worrisome trend last year. And if the home runs are continuing in spring training, that is a very worrisome one. Cause he gave up a lot last year. Yeah. Although he said he was just putting it in there. They I, always I say he, that. He, yeah, like, oh, I was, I was just throwing fastballs right over the plate. You know, I was practicing it's, that. It's not about <laughs> results. Like if a guy is like completely dominating the spring training, he'll say, Hey, I know it doesn't matter because it's a spring training, but look, I, I'm feeling really great. And if a guy is getting shelled in spring training, it's like, Hey, it's not about results. I'm just working on my stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, just working <laughs> on my curveball. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> one of my favorite Greg Maddox stories is that he used to deliberately show guys things in spring training that he would do differently in the regular season. Cause he wanted them to be thinking back to that spring training at bat, looking for the wrong thing. And I don't know if Kyle Hendricks has quite hit that level of I'm going to mess with you and like Jedi mind trick you into being having a worse at bat in May than you had in March. But if he has, I'm here for it. But the problem is the Cardinals train in Florida, so they're not seeing any of this. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Uh, speaking of um, some guys who are going to get a shot at places that maybe we, we, well, I guess we're not speaking of this. I'm just going to transition. There's an awkward transition here and I don't know how to do it. Uh, Andrelton <laughs> Simmons, who was the Cubs solution for not having a shortstop, because remember, if you've got a bunch of guys who are soft throwers, you need a shortstop who can turn those weekly hit ground balls and outs. Andrelton Simmons is out. Nico Horner is going to get the starts at shortstop to start the season. And I have been skeptical of this. I don't know that Nico Horner is a major league shortstop. I think he's a much better major league second baseman, but I got to say he had quite the play Uh, at the end of last week. And honestly, it was one of the best shortstop plays that I have seen since Javier Baez left the Cubs. If Nico can play like that and not get hurt, I think that Nico is indeed 
a major league shortstop. But I wonder, Danny, do you think that was a that was a fluke, or do you think that Nico actually has major league shortstop potential? I mean, he's not bad. I mean, it's it's not like he's going to go out there and and look like Daniel Murphy playing shortstop or something. You know, it's it it's it's gonna. It, he's athletic enough. He came back from spring uh, to spring training. He came. He's jacked up. They had to get him a new uniform. I think he was just popping out. You know, yeah, but he's, that's uh, not good. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> this is football. This is baseball. I feel like that hinders his movement or something. Not in his arms, like you know what I mean. He's got to run more. It's. I'm just saying he he came in in one of those quote unquote best shape of his life situations, <laughs> and and so I mean, athleticism will always play no matter what you're doing you know maybe if you're not you don't want to be as big as Jorge Soler because his muscles are too big they get hurt all the time but it's like no I mean he's good he's young he's still he's still fast and he's not ideal as as you would like to slot it differently and you'd like to have a better shortstop with a bunch of ground ball pitchers on your team including Wade Miley if he comes back I, I mean you're gonna have to go with what you have you sign a hurt Angelton Simmons and you knew he was hurt before this whole thing even started he's been hurt for for on and off for two years, three years. Yeah, that's the that's the problem, right? I mean, Simmons is still the name, but he's not the same player he used to be. And and while he's still even hurt, I think been an above average shortstop. He's not been Anderson Simmons, and with his bat, he needs to be a substantially above average shortstop to yeah. to justify. And he hasn't been that for the last couple of years. And I don't know that even if you get healthy as a shortstop when you're 32 or whatever, um, if you get back to that level. Um, it's just really hard. You can count the number of shortstops who were elite at the level that Simmons needs to be elite given his bat on one hand at that age. We are all over 32 on this podcast. We <laughs> know exactly so. how hard it is and how much it hurts once you pass that mile marker. I woke up and took three ibuprofen, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> I do this before I check anything just because it's probably needed. <laughs> Let's uh, take a look at someplace that's a little bit more optimistic. The outfield is crowded, but it, I, I did a deep dive on this over BCB this week. And honestly, I think it looks a lot better than you think it would, given the names who are out there. Uh, Danny, tell me what's going on with the Cubs and their outfield positioning. You've got some notes here about Hermosillo and Ortega, the platoon that the Cubs are going to try out in center field there. I don't even know if they'll make the team. I mean, that's the one thing. I mean, because, you know, Hermosillo from the right side and Ortega from the left side, their splits are such that I think we need to make one player called Hermotega or something <laughs> like that out of him. And it's like, I don't know if there's going to be room on the roster, even with 28 for, for all these guys. The problem is the uh, options is that they don't have any. Um, but it's, it, you know, you wrote, you uh, wrote that article about the, outfield even after trading Harold Ramirez still is somewhat crowded because you got Hap and Frazier and Frazier has options so you're like well how are you going to work that um you have Jason Hayward who I mean now you're like okay well we'll put him in center field and then he lost a ball in the sun the other day I mean he's not as good at center as he is at right and um I mean and you see just wonder like who's who's going to start on this team who's going to I don't even know who's going to break with the team. You've got all these guys that are kind of on the bubble right now. It Hap has got to prove it. Frazier's coming back from the Yankees. He's got to prove it. And I'm, I don't know if spring training is enough time to figure out who you're going to go with. Like one of these guys, I mean, here on they just might have to get rid of, unfortunately, you know, just because there's not room on the roster. They got 
14 infielders that they're trying to put on the team, you know. Does Frazier so, still have options? He does. Frazier still has options. It's amazing Hap, to me because he's been around Hap forever. still has options, Hap too. still has options. <laughs> oh, my so God. You wonder, and so if you wonder a team that's not necessarily trying to win, like – Frazier why, should probably be looking for Iowa real estate right now. Yeah, unfortunately, but he's having a great spring. He's done that before, and, though. That's the problem. I don't know. I, it, the yeah. Thing, yeah, you don't know what you're going to get from him. That's the, the problem. Hap is the same way. He comes for a month. He disappears for two months. He comes back for a month. And so – it, you know, everybody is, and they're they're both in prove it situations. But do you let them prove it at Wrigley Field in April, or are they proving it? Are they both proving it in Iowa so you can hang on to Ortega? I guess it depends on your ceiling, usually, right? Because Frazier's ceiling is really, really high, even though he's like cratered in the last few years due to concussions and things like that. And if you think the ceiling is really high, those are the types of guys that you'll usually give them a chance to hang themselves in in April. So, you know, he's the kind of guy that irrespective of roster construction, I'd like if he's got it, I want him on my team. And let's just look, see if he's got it right now, because I don't think you're really going to learn a lot from him about how he's going to respond if he's playing for Iowa. Well, and I didn't even mention, say, a Suzuki as being just a lock on the team, you know, so he he's the only lock because they just spent a lot of money on him. Is he going to DH or is he going to play right field? He's right field, right? I think he's going to play. I think he's going to play right and Mm -hmm. maybe uh, do do some DHing you know, as they, you know, cycle in these other guys. But Sarah, who do you, who do they break camp with? Like, I think they break camp with all of these guys. Um, I think that the 28 man roster means that they are going to break camp with the Hermotega platoon in center. They're going to let Clint Frazier and Hap try to play it out a little bit in left. They're going to keep Hayward on the team. They're going to keep, um, obviously say a Suzuki is your everyday starting right fielder the place where I also see a little bit of a roster crunch though and I got a question about this yesterday that I I actually had to go look up some stats before I was like huh I don't really have a great answer for this one is what you do at third base with Patrick Wisdom and Jonathan VR I mean Patrick Wisdom when he gets a hold of a baseball is going to it's going to go 450 feet he the the kid can hit a home run and he also strikes out like 41 percent of the time Jonathan VR is not hitting a lot of baseballs 450 feet, but he's not going to strike out close to half of his plate appearances. And, and I just sort of wonder what happens with that third third base spot, because if you put Jonathan VR at third, all of a sudden Patrick Wisdom is also competing for outfield time. He's a left fielder as well as a third baseman, which sort I mean, you just take away at bats from Frazier and Hap at that point. And I, and I worry that this team has put themselves in a position where they have a lot of flexibility, which is good for injury purposes, but it's going to take at bats away from guys who need those at bats to get hot, prove what they're doing. And hopefully, look, I said this in the outfield piece in an ideal world, Frazier and Hap both like come out as MVP swingers, the guys that we know that they can be. And you wind up establishing an everyday outfield of Frazier, Hap and Suzuki with Hayward as your defensive replacement late. I don't think that's going to happen because they're going to be sharing so much, so much playing time, making sure Hermosillo gets some playing time, making sure that Ortega gets some playing time. Got to get Jonathan VR in there. Nick Madrigal is probably going to be DHing at some point just so they can get VR some reps at defense. And I hate that. Yeah. I mean, you've, you have 14 position players and only eight of them could play like <laughs> in, in any given day, like what's the and and you have the DH. So what's the, even the point of it? Because you don't even need a bench. You know, not as like you do in, when you Correct. had a pitcher's hitting, you know, it's it's just not the same. So it, I wonder if they would even get rid of one of these guys, send them down to keep getting at bats 
uh, if not a couple of them, just break with a bunch of pitchers because you can always find in this team and this pitching staff, there's always an inning that needs to be done as this season gets going. Because uh, even even, uh, how it is now, you're not going to try to – get these like you know you're not going to see Kyle Hendricks pitching eight innings on opening day you know just with the way it's it's been with the, such a short spring and everybody's not ready so yeah I mean I think that that's a real I, there's a lot of question marks and and we're bearing down on opening day uh let's close this one out with one thing we're all looking for as the opening week of the season comes together. I know we have a lot more questions than answers in this particular episode of the podcast, but frankly, that's what opening day should be about. Questions, optimism, hope. That's where we all are. Uh, Craig, I know you're not a Cubs fan by design. So what are, maybe just give us one thing you're looking for as the season starts from MLB generally and something we should be keeping an eye on. I'm just wondering if the super teams are going to stay super. Um, You know, you've got the Braves, you've got the Dodgers who just seem to be loaded up more than anybody else. That's not going to be a first week of the season thing that's going to be determined, obviously. But um, I'm wondering mostly as the season unfolds whether people are going to take the extra playoff spot seriously and try to compete for it or whether or not we're still going to have the same sort of dynamic we've had some very, very good alpha teams and then a bunch of people just kind of messing around. So I'm curious to see how that dynamic plays out and whether the new playoff spot is going to uh, to change anything. That's a really good point. I was actually having a conversation with Alex Vast over on Pitcher List about this on Twitter last night because he was wondering if maybe, you know, some of these prospects it looks like are getting the call. Bobby Witt is going to start for the Royals. Like oh, he's, yeah, hit, he's hit his way on. Yeah, but, yeah and- Spencer Torkelson's getting Miguel Cabrera's glove in like a manager's office ceremony type of thing as he's going to be the starting first baseman for the Tigers. I it's possible that some of these teams that think they can compete, that extra playoff spot has really incentivized them to put their best guys on their opening day roster, but it's still not true in Pittsburgh. No, I, I give the Royals credit, though. Even when the Royals are bad over the last decade or so, they've always tried to be entertaining and they've always tried to put the best players on the team that they can, given their circumstances and doing things like signing recognizable veterans, bringing back Zach Granke, giving Wit a, a starting job. Um, those are all really good fan friendly things that is it going to change the Royals from uh, an also ran to a playoff contender? Probably not, but you like to see it. And uh, you know, the Tigers are kind of doing the same thing after several years of sort of tanking. So that's good to see. Yeah. Danny, I'm going to make this a little bit more spe- specific to the Cubs for you. Cause I know the Cubs are where your heart and mind is at. What is one thing you're looking for from the Cubs with this opening series against the Brewers? Well, I was going to say, I was, I'm going to go be a Tigers fan, I think, because Javi's <laughs> over there now, and it sounds like they're going to be a hoot this year. Um, what am I looking for on the Cubs in this series? Well, I, man, we're facing a, some really tough brewer pitching in the cold rain at Wrigley Field. It's not going to be easy. I think that these games are going to be one nothing, 2-1. to one. You're going to have to scratch out some runs, and I'll tell you, for the first time in a long time in April, I think we actually have the team to do it because these are all singles hitters, singles and doubles hitters, if you're lucky with the double. So if we can get like four singles in a row and maybe a walk in there, we might score two runs. Now that's way better than it's been in the past when you had five guys in your lineup swinging out of their shoes to try to hit a five run homer on a day when it's 40 degrees with the wind blowing in at Wrigley Field because that's what they all were trained to do all the time. And so I do kind of like our chances in this bad weather. Um, 
And uh, anybody could go, by the way, I should mention, because uh, tickets are only t- because of this weather that I just mentioned. Tickets on StubHub are only 20 bucks. Actually, I mean, you just you just that was a perfect segue to what I am looking for, because I don't think that the reason tickets on StubHub are only $20 has t- is 100 percent the fault of the weather. I've been to a lot of cold, rainy, drizzly, wet, sold out Cubs home openers uh, in my day. And, and this is not going to be one. I, one of the things that I'm going to be looking for this week is what the crowds look like at Wrigley field. And, you know, just to circle back to where we started this conversation with Craig's book on fandom. I think that the Ricketts are paying, playing fast and loose with teams, the fans hearts here in a way that is going to be on display in the first week of baseball at Wrigley field. I think that opening day will not sell out. You'll probably see a crowd of about 40% capacity at Wrigley Field. They might have a larger number on the big screen for the number of tickets sold. People that didn't get their resale value on StubHub, people who were trying to flip those tickets into more profit. But I think that that is going to be a half full game, if that. And later in the weekend, I think that you could get into the ballpark for $7, $6, whatever the baseline lowest ticket cost on StubHub is. And if, if I were the Ricketts, you know, They may not need a sold-out Wrigley Field in order to make money, but I think they need a sold-out Wrigley Field in order to maintain their relevance in the city of Chicago, and I would not play around with that if I were them. I think that they are playing a very, very dangerous game, particularly because the White Sox have a lot of interesting young players who I want to go pay money to see, and I don't really necessarily want to pay that money to see the Chicago Cubs right now, and that's a problem for them. Well said. Yeah, we will be looking for all of these things. We will be looking for more. If you are looking for us on social media to see what we're thinking during opening day, Craig, where can people find you on the socials and on the internet? I'm at at Craig Calcaterra and I live on Twitter and my newsletter is at cupofcoffee.substack.com. His newsletter is one of the only Substacks I subscribe to. I could not recommend it enough. It is the way I start my baseball reading every single day. Danny, where can people find you? Well, I'm at Sunranto, S-O-N-R-A-N-T-O, and we've got a big show on the Sunranto show coming up on Wednesday night live from 7 to 9 p.m. It's the Sunranto Ranters Roundtable, which Sarah will be a part of, and along with a long list of uh, Cubs blogger, podcaster, personalities, Evan Altman, uh, Mai Tai guy is going to come by, infield fly girl from uh, Twitter is going to come by, and we got I don't know, about 10 or 12 different people all circling through and telling us about their season predictions. So tune into that on uh, just, I don't know, search Sunranto. You'll find it. Sunranto.com has all the information about that. Yeah, Danny's streaming that everywhere. So you can stream it on Twitter. You can stream it yeah, on Facebook. You can Facebook, stream it on YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. Always a great conversation with the Ranters Roundtable. I look forward to it every year. You can find me at, at BCB underscore Sarah. You can find my writing at bleedcubbyblue.com. And you can follow everything from the podcast, plus find links to the things we talk about here at, at Cup of Cubby Blue. Next time, we will have Cubs victories or losses to talk about. So make sure you are subscribed so you never miss an episode. And thanks for joining us today. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.